This is the Education Gadfly Show. Serious? Come on. There, there, there was. There's no pun. There was no play on words. I mean, what is this? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Seth Gershenson, an associate professor in the Department of Public Administration and Policy at American University. Seth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Seth is calling in remotely, even though, what, you're like across town, basically? Yeah, five-minute cab ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, hey, hey, we don't want to, you know, put you out of your way, in part because you're doing such important work, and also because, uh, you know, your your partner has a a baby on the way, baby alert, so (laughs) you got to be ready for that. Also joining me, David Griffith. Yeah, thanks, Mike. (laughs) I'm here too. (laughs) And David's here too. All right. Well, we are very excited to have Seth on the show. Uh, Seth is the author of a very uh, exciting new study that the Fordham Institute published uh, looking at grade inflation. We're going to talk all about it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Seth. So the new study is grade inflation in high schools, 2005 to 2016. You use North Carolina data, which you uh, are quite familiar with. uh, And you found, looked at the relationship between how kids performed on an algebra end of course exam and their GPAs uh, and uh, which of those were more predictive of ACT scores as well as changes over time. Man, there's a lot in here. Uh, Give us just Mm -hmm. the headlines. What were some of the big findings that came out of this? Um, I'd say there's there's three or four sort of big headlines, uh, many of which I was not necessarily expecting uh, when we started the project. Uh, one of the most striking, simple results is the surprisingly big share of students who get A's and B's, but then fail to score proficient on the Algebra 1 test. Specifically, um, over a third of the students who get a B in Algebra 1 uh, mm-hmm. do not score proficient on the Algebra 1 end of course exam. Another interesting finding has to do with the predictive power of various measures of achievement on math ACT scores. Um, and there we find that we can look at attendance and grades and end of course exam scores. And of all those things, the end of course exam scores are the most predictive. But also what's, I think, more interesting is that once you account for the end of score exam, information on grades and attendance doesn't move the needle on predicting ACT scores at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the third, I guess, which is, I think, the most interesting and most surprising is tracking grade inflation over time and how the patterns in grade inflation diverged between more and less affluent schools. Specifically, uh, the ease of getting an A uh, increased quite a bit. In other words, A's got easier to get uh, for kids with a given set of scores in more affluent schools than they did in less affluent schools. So many fascinating things here to unpack. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the finding about affluent schools certainly surprised me, though turns out that it is aligned with what the college board found in a study, I guess, about a year ago, mm-hmm. looking at ACT scores, same kind of dynamic. Yeah, it's important we should say, Seth, right, that uh, we would never argue that test scores and grades should be matched up perfectly, right? That they are measuring different things. Exactly. Yeah. And I really um, feel strongly about that um, idea that they are literally measuring different things. So we shouldn't expect them to be the same. Um, And because of that, they're complementary pieces of information. 
yeah. that students and parents and teachers can and should and do use to sort of triangulate and identify uh, students' strengths and weaknesses. And yep. yeah, keeping keeping the exams is really important, I think. Yeah, and yet, you know, we what we worry about is that parents in particular, when we look at survey data, really seem to discount the tests. You know, they put a lot of weight in the grades. And so you can take those kids, a third of kids who are getting a B but not scoring proficient on the test. You can imagine that, again, if you triangulate that with other data we've seen elsewhere, learning heroes and the like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a lot of those parents say, oh, well, that's nothing to worry about. My kid just doesn't test well. You know, but they got to be, so they must be doing fine. Mm-hmm. And and what they may not realize is that uh, they're not doing so great. And that down the road, when they take the ACT, which like it or not, still matters for what kind of college you're going to get into, uh, they might be in for a rude awakening. Mike, I mean, I feel like there are a couple points worth making here. I mean, the first thing I, I, I want to say is I, I think part of the problem is that grades are ill-defined, mm-hmm. right? It's not really clear if grades are supposed to reflect uh, performance, right? absolute performance, right? Or attendance and effort, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it would be one thing if we said... And participation. Participation. Right? And if a we good said, attitude. Right, it and- would be one thing. Look, those things are super important, yeah. right? The problem is um, that we haven't clearly said whether or not that's what grades are for, right? Yeah. If we were going to say your your letter grade in the course does not reflect achievement, and we broadcast that message, and mm-hmm. we said it reflects whether your kid showed up and tried, mm-hmm. right? And then here is the test, which reflects how your kid is actually achieving. Yeah, I don't know that we would necessarily be all so freaked out about grade inflation, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone would understand mm-hmm. that the grade wasn't about achievement. The problem is the grade is sort of about achievement, or at least yeah. people think it is, right? And, and so... To the extent that that's true, it is misleading, mm-hmm. right? Um, because in practice, effort and attendance are going into the grade, mm-hmm. um, but but parents may not realize just how much they're going into the grade, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also that parents don't have any idea of what is a good grade anymore. Right. I mean, do you, you know, in a given school, it may be that everybody's getting A's and B's. And so if you're the kid, your kid is the one with the B minus, right. They could be doing worse than everybody. Right. But you don't know that if all you see is the B minus, you know, so you think about, well, are there ways that we could show, you know, more uh, you know, class rankings, percentile rankings, right. You know, something to basically say to parents, you know, you should know that your child's doing worse than almost everybody in your in their school. Yeah, well, and I, I think the other point I would make, Mike, is that I mean, I mean, there's a reason we did this with math, right? Because <laughs> math is testable, yeah. right? I mean, it is a more complicated discussion when you get to something like I don't know English, right, or social studies, where it is harder to test mm-hmm. the the all of the skills that we would like to test and you can't draw such a clean line between mm-hmm. effort, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the test scores, which are achievement, right? But in math, at least, I mean, the test score, I, I, I mean, you can tell me if I'm off base here, Seth, but like I would take a math test score pretty seriously as an indication of whether yeah. my kid can do math. Um, and so, I mean, I think this is a pretty clean, I don't know, just indicator that we're off track here. All right, but let's talk about the affluent uh, finding here, that the affluent schools have seen more grade inflation recently than the other kinds of schools. And Seth, you know, we, we talk in the report, could, you know, could this be because of parental pressure? You know, what's going on? Uh, I, I was surprised in that, you know, I think I certainly assume that you might see more grade inflation in the high poverty schools in that maybe 
there were a whole lot of kids who were not performing well on the test because we know that's strongly related to demographics, but they were getting good grades anyways. And that that in particular in those kinds of schools is sending the wrong message that everything's fine when it's not. Um, now that still happens, but I guess what we've seen is it hasn't changed over time. But for affluent kids, I mean, is this giving affluent kids some kind of unfair advantage or is it actually kind of a disadvantage? Because again, we're sending these signals to to them and their parents that they're doing okay when they're not. Well, those are two uh, really good points. I think with regards to why we don't see it um, in the less advantaged schools, I think it's important to remember that we're focusing here on the margin of getting A's. And in the schools serving lower income communities uh, and under-resourced schools and such, the margin of grade inflation might not be bumping up B's and C's to A's but rather bumping up F's to D's and C's um, that are just mm, passing. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's something maybe to look at at a, at a different study. But in our case, looking at the A's, I think there are both pros and cons or, or uh, benefits and losses to the students in these schools who are seeing great inflation. The, the downside to this and the harm to students potentially is that when you get an A, but you're not really mastering the material, that creates a false sense of complacency that's going to prevent students and parents and teachers from helping kids reach their full potential, right? Because if you see an A and you think everything's good, even though you could really benefit from some remediation or from extra practice or whatever, you're not going to get that because you think that the A means everything's good and then you stop. So that's the, that's the real uh, harm to this that, that's quite troubling. Um, and then to the extent that students benefit from this, well, I think, of course, they benefit uh, when it comes around to summer internships and jobs and college admissions, because for better or worse, we still pay attention to grades when we make those sorts of decisions. Is that really true, Seth? I mean, my sense, I mean, I'm guessing it's true at the margins, but like my sense is that colleges are pretty savvy, right? I mean, don't don't they look at schools and they see, you know, hey, every kid from this school gets A's, right? And they, they take it with a grain of salt. What's so your view on only, that? They can only make that assessment when they see a lot of kids from a school. Um, okay. And this is where there's the the social equity problem also, because if you're a school, uh, sorry, if you're a student at a lower performing or under-resourced school where not a ton of kids are applying to and going to college, uh, and a college uh, admissions counselor sees that you had an A or sees you had a B or sees you had a C, if you're the only data point from that school they've ever seen, they have no idea what to make of that grade. And so again, this uh, this can exacerbate achievement gaps because especially if we if what we're seeing is true more broadly that schools serving lower income kids are having less grade inflation they're going to have lower grades on average and when they're applying to schools admissions officers uh, aren't going to know what to do with that grade and they're going to assume that they're going to assume it is what it is uh, and then they're all of a sudden at a disadvantage to kids coming out of these grade inflating uh, more advantaged schools yeah fair enough a lot to think about here, Seth. We appreciate it. So much more to be done on this front. You know, we uh, we are certainly interested in making sure that grading and report cards and, and all of the practices associated with that get more attention. Because again, it, it's something that we know parents are paying attention to much more than the test scores. We appreciate your help and shining a light on all this. So again, thank you, Seth Gershenson, Associate Professor in the Department of Public Administration and Policy at American University. Hope you come back sometime soon, Seth. Thanks for having me. This was fun. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. (laughs) 
Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've got Adam Tyner in for Amber. And Adam, uh, what do you have for us this week? Well, this week we've got a study by Jason Grissom and Brendan Bartonin at Vanderbilt University entitled Strategic Retention, Principal Effectiveness and Teacher Turnover in Multiple Measure Teacher Evaluation Systems. You know what? Can I just stop here and say that we really need to give some lessons to our friends out there in academia about how to do better titles? Come on. <laughs> that was a brilliant title, oh, Mike. David, really? right Are you serious? Come on. There, there, there was... There's no pun. There was no play on words. I mean, what is this? I mean, anyways, okay, I, but I digress. Go ahead, Adam. All right. Well, the crux of the study is that while it's established, it's, it's been well established that better uh, school leadership leads to lower average teacher turnover. As they, the researchers say in the paper, not all turnover is created equal. They introduce the concept of strategic retention, the idea of retaining the good teachers and giving the bad teachers maybe a little nudge towards the door. The study took place using data on all public education personnel in the state of Tennessee from 2012 to 2017. They use observation and student growth scores to gauge teacher effectiveness. And to measure principal effectiveness, the researchers use data on the principal's evaluations by their superiors, as well as some surveys of teachers Although I don't know that they end up, um, uh, I mean, those end up having quite similar, they end up just kind of talking about them together, uh, or at least I'm going to end up talking about them together because their, diff their results weren't really different between those two measures. But um, it's, it's kind of, before diving into the results, it's worth mentioning some of the descriptives that they find before we look at the question of principal impact. In general, less effective teachers are just more likely to turn over. That's been found in other studies, but it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting to see that 37% of the teachers in the least effective range of performance turned over, while just 11% of teachers in the most effective range uh, turned over. So there's a, this is a, good news. a big gap um, in, in, uh, in turnover among, uh, among different types of teachers. And Adam, just a quick point of clarification. When you say turnover, you're saying leave the school or leave the profession? It, it means it, it includes uh, going to a different Both. school in the district or going to a different school or leaving entirely. Okay. All right. Yep. So to the results, the question of do better principals lead, you know, are they practicing this strategic turnover or um, are they doing better at keeping good teachers and, and, and letting the other ones go? Um, as other studies have found, principals with greater effectiveness in general have lower teacher turnover in their schools. A one standard deviation increase in principal effectiveness is correlated with about a 5% change. That's about a 0.5% percentage point change in, uh, in teacher turnover overall. And then to the question of strategic retention, there's evidence that the answer is yes. A one standard deviation increase in the um, in the effectiveness rating of the superintendent is associated with a 1.3 percentage point decrease in turnover among teachers who are at the highest level of effectiveness, but a 2.3 percentage point increase in the likelihood of turnover for the worst teachers. It, it's I guess one of the things that's interesting about this is that they look at these effects in different types of schools, and they find that the effects are strongest in suburban schools, 
And they speculate that this may be because there's more demand to teach in those areas. So, I mean, if no one wants to teach in your school, you should probably shouldn't be nudging people out the door, I guess. On the one hand, the, the findings of the study are not really that shocking. I mean, good leaders at any kind of organization are probably trying to do the best that they, they can with, with what they have and probably trying to improve their staff over time by doing this kind of stuff. But it does show that leadership matters in, in these schools, if, if that was in doubt. Yeah, and, and it, what's interesting, too, is that it's done through the back channel way often, right? That it's not that these teachers are actually being formally uh, fired or terminated or whatever the term we use, uh, but they're being, as you say, nudged out. Right. Uh, maybe this this could be the, the dance of the lemons, getting pushed to another school, or maybe encouraged to go become a real estate uh, professional. Right, they like talk that. about how they're actually putting teachers on professional improvement plans is a formal way of kind of not exactly censoring them, but trying to get them on track. But that kind of comes with enough stigma that many teachers quit because of that. And that some of those formal mechanisms do actually have the effect of increasing teacher turnover among the the worst performing teachers, but that lots of the, the mechanisms for this are the informal things, the counseling out, giving them less desirable job assignments, or just giving them low evaluation ratings. I feel like we're only talking about the one half of it, though, right? I mean, isn't um, it's right there in the word retention, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, I, I mean, I I know that there are these informal ways of counseling out people who aren't are struggling, right? But I mean, surely the other half of it is trying to keep the high performers. Right? Sorry, Absolutely. yes, yes, I'm, yes, I'm sorry. obsessed with firing people. That you I are. It's yes, what I'm sorry. trying to say. Uh, is you are. I should be more focused on retaining <laughs> excellent staff. Is that what you're saying, David? I'm, I'm saying that there are the many, many schools in this country <laughs> where you could solve the teacher quality problem by just keeping the effective teachers. Yes. Right. All right. And the better, I'm, pro- the I'm better sorry, that was more of a statement than a question. Keeping those those high value added or those those teachers with with uh, with high ratings um, at a at a considerably higher rate. Yeah. No, I think that's good news. I mean, I wish personally, I wish we would give principals, uh, at least in traditional district schools, right, more flexibility to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you should be able to give someone a bonus if you think they're really awesome at their job they can and tell them you want them to stay. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Or if they're come to you and say, Hey, I, I really would love to keep teaching here. But if I go to the suburban district across the line here, I make 10,000 more. Right. That they'd be able to say, well, we'll match your salary. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff, Adam. Appreciate it. Thanks for pinch hitting. And I'm afraid that is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.